Go ahead and grab a seat. I was supposed to make an announcement earlier. I had one job and I messed it up. I had one announcement and didn't give it. The announcement is very simply, we're not meeting next week, right? That's a pretty important deal. So do not come here on the 25th. Spend that time with your family. Um, there's two reasons for that. Primarily, they're not letting us meet here, <laughs> okay? So we won't be meeting. But secondly, if we did have the ability, we probably still wouldn't do it. And so every great once in a while, you have the 25th fall on a Sunday, not looking for all of our volunteers to show up here at 8 o'clock in the morning and get things set up for six people. So what we'd rather you do is spend that time with your family, lead your family through that moment. If you need ideas on how to do that, we're, we're happy to help you with that. But just to be very clear, I'm going to say it one more time, especially for our people online who are not here, we're not meeting here this next week. But on Jan 1, we are meeting here, okay? So we are going to kick the new year off with a Sunday service, that is for sure. Um, but listen, we're going to be in Psalm 98 today. That's going to be the passage that's going to do our heavy lifting for us, so you're going to want to turn there. And listen, if you know me for any time at all, you know I like to make fun of the British any chance I get. They make it so easy, right? Um, I actually don't know much about Great Britain besides what pop culture has taught me about Great Britain, which is they don't know how to do football right. They don't know about how fish and chips are supposed to be. They don't know a lot of things. They know Sherlock Holmes and a couple other things, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what, what it's all about. But the show The Crown has helped me learn a lot more about the British. And I get it. It's not totally true but it's truish enough, right? I mean, it's true enough, and I know when I'm watching it, it's getting the most accurate representation I'm willing to sit down and watch. But one moment that resonated a bunch with me in one of the episodes was the speech that Queen Elizabeth gave in 1992 after a year that was particularly terrible for her. One line out of this speech. She says, 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. It has turned out to be an annus horribilis. I suspect that I am not alone in thinking it so. Horribilis just means terrible, just means a terrible year. I think she's not alone. I mean, personally, 92 is a pretty good year for me. I think I was like a sophomore or something in high school. I don't remember much going wrong in that moment, but I have had a year or two that were more horribilis than others, right? Maybe you too. And I think there's just something healthy maybe helpful in just saying it out loud, just frankly and honestly saying it's been a pretty tough year. Um, maybe things aren't going well for you. Maybe it's just been more of a year of sadness or depression. I think just saying I can't find happiness right now, I think that's the beginning of something healthy because it just feels honest, and it is honest for a lot of people. No more acting, no more just faking it until you make it. Forcing a smile, putting a mask on, it's just honest appraisal. Now, there's a couple caveats in this kind of honest appraisal. One, one is that, that honesty can sometimes sink into a, a self-pity, right, where it just collapses on top of itself. And it's dangerous when self-awareness does that because it turns into what we call self-infatuation, where we require everybody else's sympathy and empathy just to feel better, just to feel good. And I think just as bad as when we use a horrible season as an excuse to rebel against God and just be foolish. And I see this a lot, and you probably do too. When some people are squeezed, rather than grow, rather than just punch through it, rather than find Christ in the middle of their suffering, they blame it on the season. 
And they put on a, a sort of entitlement to just do whatever their flesh says is okay to do in that moment. Those are caveats, though. I still think, in general, growth begins in a healthy and aware honesty of just where you're at, not being fake. Not self-infatuation, but a gospel-bound self-awareness, a self-awareness that will end at the person and the work of Jesus. Because our, our, our sad moments, our horribilous moments, and even our happiness, it's splotchy, isn't it? It's not consistent at all, which is why you might feel glad in some areas right now and feel like you're suffocating in others, right? Love your job, hate your wife. Love your wife, hate your job, right? Love your kids, hate your health. But there's always something going on, right? Where you, where you feel like you're gaining yards over here, you're losing yards over there. Today, the joy, the pleasure, the happiness, the gladness that you have, it's partial, broken, fragmented. It's inconsistent to say the least. It's splotchy, right? And that's because of the fall. It all goes back to Genesis 3, what happened in the fall. In fact, it's only going to be a glorified creation upon Jesus' return, which is his second advent, right? Advent just means arrival. That's all it means, coming or arrival. So what we celebrate in this season is half his arrival through a manger, and then it is half his return on a white horse. But what we do is we celebrate his arrival. And it's only going to be a glorified creation in the second arrival that will totally solve all unhappiness in all areas for all times. But today we lack consistent pleasure. We lack consistent joy. We lack consistent gladness. When it comes to pleasure, there's this interesting thing. Now, I learned this on WebMD. Listen, if you've not found WebMD yet, if you just feel a little cough or a twinge in your knee, race there, don't walk, and type in your symptoms, and it's magic. It will tell you exactly what you have. It's the pinnacle of medical accuracy, I promise you. Not really. Don't do any of that. But there's a syndrome called anhedonia which is an inability to feel pleasure in any dimension, physically, emotionally, and socially. Anhedonia. And medicine actually doesn't know what causes it. There are some guesses, something about dopamine receptors and blah, 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 right? But they don't really know. And because they don't really know, they don't, they don't really know how to fix it either. They have no idea. They cross their fingers and they give some, some broad things out. But that doesn't keep us from trying to fix our lack of pleasure. In fact, most of the time we do it, we try to do it without Christ. And we find ourselves living a grayscale life with not much color in it. But then occasionally we find a pop of color in something, some person, some thing. And because it brings so much meaning, even for just a split second, we will devote ourselves to it, protect it, guard it, invest it, and get addicted to it. That happens all the time. The Bible would call that an idol. And idols are born in hearts, not because they're joyful and happy, but because they're quite the opposite. They're not joyful or happy. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we're actually called to be joyful, even in the midst of an Annas Horribilis, even in the midst of a very difficult season. I mean, it doesn't even seem possible to hold the both at the same time, but it is true. Paul says this thing to the church in Corinth, which is his third letter, but the second letter that we have in our Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is just a paraphrase. He says, I've cheerfully resolved to be proud of my weaknesses because they mean a deeper, more robust connection to the power of Jesus. Therefore, I enjoy weaknesses, enjoy sufferings, enjoy persecutions and difficulties. That sounds crazy to me, that he could enjoy them, that he could be proud of those moments. 
You know, Advent is going to show us how this works. But before we look at our hymn today, which is Joy to the World, as Charlie had said, which, by the way, is from the 1600s. Isaac Watts wrote that a long time ago. And, by the way, it is the most published Christmas hymn of all time. Before we look at that in any way, I want to look at the psalm that brought it forth in the mind of Watts. And that's going to be in Psalm 98. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible or a device that you're using, we will put it up on the screen for you as well. It's not a very long psalm, but it is one of celebration. Psalm 98. The psalmist says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king. O Lord, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equities. Okay, this is... What gave us joy to the world, which has been covered by everyone in the world, it seems like, being as published as it is. Aretha Franklin did it. Rascal Flatts did it, if you really hate yourself. But the number one most covered version is from Mariah Carey, and I'm not even kidding you, and probably the greatest Christmas album of all time, right? That's what me and, we, me and, me and Mr. Grissom were discussing that. He's the only one that loves that album more than I do, but I grew up with that Christmas album, right? If you're ever in a trivia contest in some random bar and the subject is Christmas hymns, the answer is always Mariah Carey. Just click the buzzer and just blurt it out and you will win, right? <laughs> but here's the thing, no matter who sings it, it always sounds joyful, that always sounds happy, emotional even. And that's because joy is an emotion. It's not an idea. It's a felt emotion, just like anger, just, just like sadness. These are emotions. Joy is the feeling of deep, resounding gladness. Now, it's not the same exact thing as happiness, but it's not less than happiness. Okay? It's not the same exactly, but it's not less than it. I mean, what I mean by that is happiness is moment to moment. It could be deflated or inflated by what's going on. You could lose it just as quick as it came. It doesn't mean it's insignificant. It's very significant. It's just not anchored very well. It's just tied to the temperature of what's going on around you. It can evaporate quickly. All it takes is a bad night of sleep, right? Or an 18-wheeler that's in the left lane way too long, right? Just move over. Just move over all the way. Not that that's ever happened to me, but it's made me unhappy, right? Drains the moment. Listen, but is it true? We're all just one phone call away from being terribly unhappy. Just one phone call. That's different from joy. Joy has a happy crust to it, I guess you could say, but it is an anchored gladness that can be boosted by the moment, but it's not necessarily drained by the moment either, right? It's more than happiness. It's never less than happiness. 
And we see the Bible actually joining them together and our connection to those two in a couple key areas. But one is Psalm 68, which I find to be fascinating. And it says this, but the righteous shall be glad. If you're in Christ, by the way, today, that's you. That's you. Not righteous because you do good things, as it would have been read in the Old Testament era, but you are righteous because you wear the cloak and the righteous garb of Christ. You are hidden in Christ, right? So it says this, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Hey, but what about when you just don't feel joyful? How do you feel something you don't feel? How do you feel happy when you're just not happy, especially if that's what we are created to do? Now, that's a hard question for a lot of people, and I think that's where addictions come from, where we find something, something, some person, something, and maybe it's harmless in and of itself, like scrolling. It's harmless in and of itself, or, or eating, harmless in and of itself, gaming, Maybe it's more destructive in its nature, like pornography or an affair or something like that. But we find something that gives us a pop of color, whether it's harmless or harmful, and we give it our everything. And I think that's going to be for a lot of people in this room. Not because you're wretched and worse than the person next to you. It's because you're fallen and you're in a broken world. You're just like the person next to you. Some of us have found an addiction, and it's not because we're super happy. It's not because we're super joyful. It's because something for one second has pulled us out of a life that does not feel happy into a realm where we feel happy. And to let go of that thing, it's the same in our minds as just letting go of happiness, just letting go of joy altogether. Maybe you found something that just pulled you for just a second out of a joyless life. And that single second is worth all the investment that it requires from you. But when that moment passes, we find ourselves worse off than before, don't we? Shame rolls. We run from Jesus. We keep it hidden from the people that we love around us. We lose confidence before the Lord. We stop reading. We stop praying. Gladness feels far away. Joy feels even further. And all we have left is the idol. And it just repeats on and on and on and on. This is where Psalm 98 in this hymn leads us well. And this is where the song, Joy to the World, leads us very well. In fact, one of, the stan one of the stanzas that Watts puts in there is, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor sins infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Okay, so let me read that again, because I want you to try to imagine what part of the Bible this comes out of. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. By the way, that's the stanza that Mariah Carey drops like a bad habit. No dude, it's, it's got words like infest and curse and sin in there. This comes from Genesis 3, the, the point of destruction for all of our consistent happiness and joy. The point where it stopped being consistent and permanent joy and started becoming fragmented and hard to find. This is what it says in Genesis 3. I'm going to turn there. You can stay where you're at in your psalm. Verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, shall, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so that ends up in a Christmas song. But one of the things it does is it reminds you and me that as far as the curse travels, blessings will follow. That's important. That's important. As far as the curse will go, blessings will follow. I mean, the gospel's a great story. I said it when we started the whole service off, that the gospel, if you were to just squeeze it and distill it into one big statement, it's the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again, giving us his very own spirit that will collect us together in a way that we will grow to look more like him until the day he comes back and rescues his family. That story It's a big story. It's a big tent. But inside of this story, it's also the story of Jesus chasing down every fragment of sadness and every fragment of horribilous moments and reversing it. One day reversing it. I mean, just consider this. Most of your moments, they're not sad or terrible. They're just kind of forgettable, right? I mean, you don't remember what you ate for lunch three weeks ago on Tuesday. You don't remember what anyone up here preached six months ago. You don't remember what you streamed before you streamed the thing that you're streaming now, right? We don't remember. They're forgettable. Disposable days full of disposable moments, right? Did you know that that's also a symptom of the curse? The fact that the curse would come and break even our days to where some things just aren't memorable anymore. We lose texture. There's no beauty. It's just disposable. We cast some days off and those days turn into weeks and months, sometimes years we cast them off. You need to know that one day you won't even have forgettable moments anymore. One day there will be no disposable moments, no more hunting for happiness, no more looking for joy under every rock we could kick over, no more hunting. It's right before us at all time. Now I know that's Little consolation for a lot of us today. This is how Paul deals with that in us in Romans 8. And again, stay where you're at if you're there. And I'm going to read this out of the J.B. Phillips Bible. Listen, just a quick, quick comment on that. That's a great translation um, of a Bible. It's not what we would call a word-for-word translation. It's more of a thought-for-thought or an episode-by-episode. So it's not going to feel as wooden as maybe like the ESV or the New King James or something like that. Um, it's not a version I would study from, but it's a version I love reading from. It's a fresh um, just reading of some very common scriptures that maybe kind of have you look at it with a little bit of a different lens. And so I just encourage you to read it as a reading companion to whatever you're studying out of. But in Romans 8, J.B. Phillips has it translated this way. Paul says, in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. In the end of the whole of created life, we will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. It is plain to anyone with eyes to see that at the present time, all created life groans in a sort of universal travail. And it is plain, too, that we who have a foretaste of the Spirit are in a state of painful tension. We wait for that redemption of our bodies. In our moments of impatience, let us remember that hope always means waiting for something that we haven't got yet. But if we hope for something we cannot see, then we must settle down 
to wait for it patiently. But that's where we get our, our, our wires crossed, right there. We believe in our heads, and I'm with you if you believe this. I've been there. The, you can't really hold on to sadness and joy at the same time. There's only room for one at the table. One has to get up and leave for the other to be there. If things are sad, you can't possibly be joyful. And if things are joyful, you can't possibly be sad. That's what we think. And just for me to say that something might be different than that, it sounds stupid, right? Just me mentioning that it might not be that way. When we encounter sadness today, we have patient hope, as Paul says. Patient hope that God can and will change the landscape. That blessings will follow the curse as far as it could be found. If that's true, and I suggest that it is, if that's true, that means we can carry sadness and joy at the same time just as Paul did. We can carry them both at the same time. Sadness for what's sad. Listen, friends, you should be sad when something's sad or else you're a weirdo, right? Or something's wrong. If something is sad that is happening, feel free to be sad. Mourn it. Grieve it. But do so knowing that God will chase it down and reverse it soon enough. He will fix what is broken. But that brings us back to the original question. How can we feel something we don't feel? How can we have joy that we don't necessarily feel like having? And the beginning of the answer is that is that God doesn't expect something from you he doesn't give you the ability for. He doesn't. That's just the kind of God we serve. He's just that kind. Augustine said it this way, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. Right? That means he's going to put some things before us to walk into, imperatives, for us to execute, for us to move through, but we're not left on our, on our own to do that. He empowers us to do that. He gives us the ability to do that. It's a great God we worship, one who never expects more from us than he can do through us. You see, joy is produced in us by the Spirit of God. And when that happens, it leads us, the Spirit leads us to see Jesus clearly, more clearly, bigger, wider, and this makes the heart glad. Because what we hope for, we don't have yet, but we know it's coming. This way, even when you are sad, the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And when this happens for me, when I'm sad and I ask the Holy Spirit to give me sight line of Jesus in that moment, his goodness, his thoughtfulness, his caring nature towards me, my heart's response is joy. Is that joy mingled? Absolutely, because it's sad. Things are sad. It's a horribilous moment. And yet I have joy at the same time. This is unnatural it's not natural. It is a gift, and we all need it. We all need it. You see, God creates joy in us through his spirit. Some of you, if you've grown up in the church, you've known this. Paul talks to the Galatian church about this in the fifth chapter. He starts talking about what we call, very commonly, the fruit of the spirit, which are things, ways of walking that the spirit does in us. We're patients is there because the Spirit did something beautiful in us. We're patient when we're not normally patient. Patient outside of our ability to be patient, I guess we could say. Or, or self-disciplined. Or we love someone where we wouldn't typically love them and don't really feel like loving them, but the Holy Spirit builds it in us. Joy is one of those. Love, joy, peace, patience, it goes on. Joy is one of those. It's something that God builds in us. This is why sometimes you could have your world come apart and still sing, Right? And you can't even explain it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever made it through just a horrible moment, a terrible moment, and you're thinking, wait, 
why am I not rocked right now? I mean, I'm sad about that, but I really love Jesus right now. Like, I'm not left alone. I don't feel so despondent. I'm not, I'm not wallowing in self-pity right now. Why is that? That's typically what I would do. It's not what I'm doing now. That's the Holy Spirit doing in that, you friend? Like a seed that has been thrown in some cracked, barren ground, it just joy sprouts where it shouldn't sprout. This is because of what Christ has done. This is joy that has come to our world, and he will come again. Jesus, the one who reverses the curse as far as it is found, this joy has come as a child. This joy will return as a valiant, divine warrior king. Watts says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. You see, that song, it's not about the manger. It's about the return of our king as much as anything. So when we slam into terrible moments, we fix our eyes with hope on him, trusting his promises, and asking the Holy Spirit to just bring something to us that's unnatural. And friends, you could just pray it just like that, right? I don't feel like being happy right now, Lord. I'm pretty miserable right now. And I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to be miserable right now because that's not a fun thing to go through. This is sad. The fact that this has happened in my life is ridiculously sad. Yet, could you show me who you are right now? Could you give me view of your love, your thoughtfulness, your power? Can you give me sight now? And as the Holy Spirit does that, over time, over time, sometimes in an instant, oftentimes it's spread out, it accrues. What's natural is worship, joy, joy. In fact, if we were to just, as we finish this time and go into musical worship here in just a little bit, I want to talk about how we can maybe tighten the screws on this and bring application to this on a song like Joy to the World and in a psalm like 98. And that is to take our addictions and bring them to Christ for a comparison study. This is what I mean when I say take your addictions. And you, and you might, if you're thinking, Luke, I don't even know what my idols and addictions are. I don't know what my idols are. Listen, they're the things in your head right now telling you that they are not idols, right? Right now, the reasoning with you, just as I say it out loud, he's not talking about you. He's not talking about me right now. I'm just a hobby. I'm a hobby, that's all I am, or I'm something good, or listen, it's just a phase right now. It's not an idol. This is a victimless sin. It'll say all kinds of things because as soon as you put the I word on it, it's war, and it doesn't want to be kicked out. It wants room in your life, so take your addictions, whatever they are, even if it's good. Hear me now, even if it's good. It's important to make that distinction. Good things are good. We're meant to collect good things, guard good things, but good things are incapable of being ultimate things. They can't be ultimate. They can't save you. They can't be a Jesus to you, right? I and mean, we're tempted to do that with good things, right? By the way, that's how work turns into overwork. It turns into overwork. Overworking is not working more than 40 hours a week. Can we just be honest for a moment, right? I don't even know what 40 hours a week is anymore. I think it's probably like 55 or something. But you can overwork with 20 hours and not overwork with 55 Let's say you're in a job right now and it's just it's deadline time and you just got to burn the candle to get the work done. That's not overwork. Overworking is when you're trying to get something out of the work that only Jesus is meant to deliver to you, which is meaning. If you're trying to squeeze meaning, if you need that job to make you matter, to make you important, to make you significant, 
then what you're doing at work could be overwork. And it doesn't require more than 40 hours to do that, to get something out of work that only Jesus was meant to give. We do the same thing with our kids. Kids are great. They're about to be all up here, picking their nose and pushing each other and monkeying their way through a song, right? It's going to be cute. I mean, we want it for cute factor, don't we? And You're going to get it. You're going to get it today. It's going to be awesome. But we can worship them, can't we? I mean, you've seen the parents that need, I mean, they don't just, they're not just happy when their kids do well. Friends, listen, they need their kids to do well. Why? So that they can matter as parents. So they could look in the mirror and say, I did it. I'm a good parent, and I know that because I'm better than that parent. Because my kid is better than that kid, right? You see how it works? That's kid worship. You could worship good things. Money is the same thing. Listen, money's not a sin. Nothing sinful about money. It's amoral, just like the internet or something. It's something that we can use to worship God and it's something we can use to sin with. But to take our idols, our addictions, and to remove them will carry us to a certain hell where we're more than just not happy. We're destroyed. And that's how you know. That's one of the ways you know whether it is an idol in your life. Imagine life without it. Can you exist or are you utterly destroyed? That's a litmus test for you, right? Now, I think if you have one of those idols or 10 of them, and I think we all not only have idols in our life, by the way, so I'm not talking at you, I'm with you, I think we're really good at making them. Our hearts make them pretty effortlessly. We don't even need things to do it, right? But we intuit that they can't save us. The things that are bringing that to you, aren't the returns starting to diminish But isn't that thing starting to ask for more to get that diminishing return? The voice you'll hear from an idol is, you are almost there. We've talked about this in the past. This is the most common statement any idol will tell you in your head. You're almost there. just need a little bit more worship. The reason you're getting diminishing returns is because you're not giving enough. You've got to give more. And then you've got to give more. And then more on top of that. That's the common lingo. So bring those things and make them compete. Bring your idols Make them compete with the glory of God. Bring them before God and ask the Holy Spirit to run a comparison between himself and whatever it is that has your heart. Does that thing bring you permanent joy? Does he promise to chase down everything that is sad and undo it? Did he die for you? Did it rescue you? Does it keep its promises? Does it prepare a place for you? That's that's work for you to do. But listen, if you're depressed or discontent, Just ask God for the spirit to show you Jesus as better than all good things, the goodest of all goods, and know that one day he will chase down the curse and reverse it. And friends, listen, I get it. It might be an anus horribilis for you. You might not be grinning because of the moment you're in. doesn't mean your heart can't sing. It doesn't mean your heart can't sing. It doesn't mean you can't have full view of who God is for you and the person of Christ in this moment. In this season. And listen, if you are addicted to something, something you've picked up you cannot put down, ask the Spirit of God not just to give you view of him, but to give you the power to put that down, whatever that is. And that's just a simple prayer. One that, again, starts with self-awareness. Lord, I feel like I might be addicted to this. I'm not sure. Started off as a good thing? Nah, I'm not so sure. Maybe, Lord, I'm having a hard time discerning whether this is even an idol or not. I don't even know if I'm addicted or not. I don't know, but it's kind of on the shelf. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. I'm pretty sure I need help figuring it out. That's a a good way to start that prayer off. 
But listen, here's good news for all of us. There will be a day when creation sings and claps its hands and no days will ever be forgettable again. That much we are promised. It says this in Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. That and what we read in Psalm 98 gave us this beautiful stanza in joy to the world. Joy to the earth, Watts wrote, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Forever and ever and ever, there will be a competition between us and creation to lift up, glorify, enjoy the glory of God in the person of Christ. We get to do that in an age where there will be no more disposable seconds, but we will get to drink deeply of the glory of God as we face Christ face to face forever and ever, where every second is better than the one that just passed. Joy to the world. Jesus has arrived, and he is going to arrive again. Amen? Amen.